Well, welcome. Good morning. It's good to be with you, whether you're here in the sanctuary with me in East Hall or watching online. My name is Zach. I'm on staff here at CCC running something we call Orchard NEO. And that is our church planting initiative. Here at CCC, here's what we believe. Every neighborhood of Northeast Ohio should have in it a local gospel preaching church. That every neighborhood needs a church in it that looks like that neighborhood and feels like that neighborhood, but is pointing people to the one true gospel. That only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection can we begin a relationship with God. I hope that you are still excited about what's going on with Orchard Inio. I hope that you've signed up for our weekly newsletter and that you're getting that and reading that and praying alongside of us with that. If you haven't gotten that, you can get information about how to sign up in your bulletin today. So this is the front, this dark cover. And if you turn around to the other side, on the bottom left, you'll find a blue rectangle with all the information you need to sign up for our weekly newsletter and to stay up to date about what we're doing all over Northeast Ohio to start local gospel preaching churches. If you are receiving the, the newsletter, then you'll know, for example, that uh, we are bringing in five church planning candidates in May for our second round of interviews. We're very excited about that and that Orchard NEO is hiring. So a lot of really good information goes in that newsletter every week. It's very important to us that you're praying alongside of us, and it's also important to us that you're praying today's prayers, that you're not remembering last time you heard something about church planting, but that every week you're getting in your inbox all new things that you can be praying alongside of us for God to do in Northeast Ohio. So please sign up for that. Encourage friends and family members, even who are at other churches around Northeast Ohio to sign up for that so that everybody can know what's going on and what's coming next with our church planning efforts. We are beginning or continuing our series on calling or calling it Only Jesus. We're going through the Gospel of John and we're looking at all these stories about Jesus that teach us something about Jesus that's true. And not just something that's true about Jesus, but something that is uniquely true. Something that is true of only Jesus. And we're going to do that again today by talking about how only Jesus offers hope. So if you have your Bible, I'd love to ask you to turn it to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 38. We're actually going to be talking about the story that runs all of John 11. So as you're turning to John eleven thirty-eight, 38, let me tell you the story that you've missed so far. And by the way, the verses we're going to read are going to be on the screen behind me. So if you don't have a Bible, no problem. You can follow along there. So the story begins with Jesus and his disciples receiving a message. It's from some friends of Jesus, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary and Martha are writing Jesus to tell him that their brother Lazarus is sick. And they're asking Jesus to come visit them. And of course, they know Jesus. They know Jesus does miracles. And so they're not just wanting his company. They're wanting him to come and heal their brother so that he won't die. And Jesus does begin to make his way to the family. But before he gets there, uh, he tells his disciples not to worry that Lazarus isn't going to die. But when they arrive, Lazarus has died. In fact, they arrive in the middle of a funeral. And everyone's crying and everyone's sad, and including Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, who when Jesus gets there, they run up to Jesus and they kind of grab him and say, what took you so long? Where you been? If you had been here, they say, this wouldn't have happened. If you had come faster, you could have 
fixed this. And Jesus is so struck by the raw emotion in the room, by the grief and by the mourning, that he also begins to weep. In fact, he cries so kind of violently that everyone around him says, wow, he really loved Lazarus. And Jesus asks to be taken to the tomb where where Lazarus has been buried. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 38. So read with me here and let's see what happens at the conclusion of the story. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want to show you three things from this story, three things that I think are really important and three things that will help us to see how only Jesus offers hope. Here they are. Number one, I want to show you that Jesus understands us. Number two, that Jesus loves us. And number three, that Jesus can help us. Jesus understands us, he loves us, and he can help us. Let's start with the first one, Jesus understands us. You know, there are two kinds of knowledge about any particular topic. And that is, first, there's a kind of academic knowledge, and then second, uh, experiential knowledge. Both are important, but they're different. The academic knowledge is when you read a book about something, when you take a class, when you study a subject. And so you you know about it. You, you, You can diagram it on a whiteboard. You can explain it. You know it not because you've lived it or been through it, but because you've given it a lot of time and energy and thought. You know about it academically, professionally, clinically, medically, that kind of thing. Then there's a second kind of knowledge which maybe can't diagram anything on the whiteboard and can't explain everything that's going on, but understands and knows about something because they've lived it. They they know what it feels like. They know what you think about when you're going through it. Both are very important. Like, let me give you an example. Let's say that you are diagnosed with cancer. You are going to want to meet post-diagnosis with a specialist of some kind, with a doctor. And when you meet with her, you're going to want her to tell you all about your illness. You're going to want her to know the ins and outs of the biology and the chemistry. You're going to want her to know everything scientifically, medically, clinically, academically about what's going on in your body and about how to treat it. After all, it would be a really bad doctor that you went to with your diagnosis and she grabbed a box of Kleenexes off the shelf and began to cry with you. And when you said, doctor, what are we going to do? She says, I don't know. That's a bad doctor. You, you, You don't want that doctor. 
You want a doctor who knows academically, professionally, clinically, scientifically what's going on. You don't go to the doctor for empathy. You go to the doctor for expertise. But when you leave the doctor, you are going to want a different kind of knowledge. You're, you're going to want to find friends and family members, support groups who have lived what you're living. You're going to want to be in relationship with people who can say, I know how you're feeling. I know what you're afraid of. I know the things running through your mind and, and through your heart. I know how difficult it is to deal with family members and friends who are trying to figure out how to relate to you. In that group, you're not looking for biology or for medical diagnosis. You're looking for understanding. Both kinds of knowledge are important, but they're very different. I wonder when you think about God, which kind of knowledge you think about God having. It seems to me that most of us interact with God as though God were like the doctor. He has academic knowledge he has professional knowledge, a clinical knowledge. He, he has wisdom. He understands what's going on. He understands the problem. He understands the answer. But we're not necessarily expecting to find a lot of empathy. Well, one of the ways you can measure that is when we pray. Like we, when we pray about something, what we tend to do is bring God the problem and then kind of wait for something to happen. Like, like have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're devastated about something? You, you find yourself in really difficult circumstances and you say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on my knees at my bed and I'm going to pray and pray and pray and pray till I can't pray anymore. So you get on your knees and you pray everything you've got. You pray and you pray and you pray and you look up. It's been two minutes. And the reason why is because what do you say? You tell the doctor you're sick and you wait for the doctor to do something. That's what you do. It's transactional. It's professional. That's how you relate to God. But, but, that is not the only way we can relate to the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible came near to us in the man, Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man, Jesus. That in Jesus, God identifies with us and as one of us. He begins to understand us in a way we can identify with as a man. You see that in the story two different ways. Let me show you how Jesus shows us that God understands us. Two different ways in John 11. The first way is that Jesus suffers like one of us. When, when Jesus shows up to Lazarus' funeral, he's so struck by the grief around him that he, he, he begins to weep. And, and men, do you know what it is to weep? We're not talking about when you watch one of her movies and a single tear rolls down the cheek and, and you wipe it away before she sees it and can call you on it. We're talking about the kind of crying where there's like snot bubbles coming out of your nose. Jesus is crying so violently that everybody looks at him and says, wow, he really loved Lazarus. But it's not just the death of Lazarus that has Jesus moved. It's the whole scene. It's, it's Lazarus being dead, sure, but it's the family members and friends who are mourning him and grieving for him. Jesus is so struck. He weeps. He, he cries when he gets there. He cries on the way. Even in verse 38, when they get to the tomb, look at what it says. Then Jesus deeply moved again. 
This is the waves of grief, right? It hits him once and it hits him twice and it just keeps going. Listen, Jesus is at the funeral as one of us. He's grieving and mourning. He's hurt. He's sick with grief. Jesus understands everyone else there because he's like them. He is sad about Lazarus. He is heartbroken for his sisters and his family and his friends. He is one of us. But, but the other way you see that Jesus understands us is not just that he cries and that he's heartbroken, but also how he interacts with the other people there. I told you that when Jesus shows up, Mary and Martha come to him one after another, and they grab him and they say, what took you so long? Why didn't you get here faster? And even when he gets in the building where everyone's gathered, the crowd says, shouldn't he have gotten here? Couldn't he have done something? Now here's the thing. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When the message comes to him in the very beginning of John 11, he says to the disciples, don't worry, Lazarus is not going to die. This will not lead to death. When he prays, he says, God, I thank you. I already know what you're going to do, so thank you. He knows God's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When he gets there and the sisters come to him and say, where were you? He could have just looked at them and said, chill out. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Relax. Go change out of those black clothes. Put on something colorful. It's going to be a party. He could have said that, but he didn't. Do you know why? He doesn't shut them down. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't challenge them. He lets them speak because he understands them. They're speaking out of pain and hurt. He has pain and hurt. He gets them. He lets them speak. He lets them be wrong. He lets them accuse him because he understands their pain. Listen, John 11 is inviting us into the idea that what if when we speak to God, his first move isn't to challenge us or rebuke us or correct us. What if God's first move when you speak to him is to understand you? See, the God of the Bible, the Bible tells us, has at his right hand Jesus, the God-man. And that when we pray, Jesus says to the Father, I know exactly how they feel. I know exactly what they're going through. When you and I pray, we don't pray to a God who's an academic only. We don't pray to a God who's a source of wisdom only. We don't just talk to the doctor. We have in Jesus the doctor and the support group all in one. Yes, he has wisdom. Yes, he has answers. Yes, he knows the problem intellectually. But even more than that, he empathizes. He is one of us. He understands us. And that means when we pray, we don't just have to give him the problem. We don't just have to state the situation. We can pour out our hearts. He knows how we feel. Even if we say things like, what took you so long? Where have you been? What are you doing? Even then, he understands where those questions are coming from. Listen, if you need hope, here's some hope. When you talk to God because of Jesus, he understands you. But that leads me to my second point, which is to say, not only does he understand us, but he loves us. Because here's the thing, to fully understand you may not lead to loving you. 
It's possible that if someone understands everything that's going on in your head and everything that's going on in your heart, they might actually be repulsed by you. It's possible that someone who fully understands you would say, oh, you know what, they're not that great. They're not that lovable. You know this because you and I often keep everyone else at bay. We don't want people to fully understand us, so we create versions of ourselves, right? This is me at work, and this is me in the neighborhood, and this is me at family gatherings, and this is me at social gatherings. And what we're saying is I want to give you versions of myself because I'm not sure what you'll do if you see all of me. I'm not sure what you'd think if you knew all of me. So the idea that God understands us may not be good news if he doesn't love us. Well, one thing's for sure in John 11 is Jesus loves Lazarus. I told you when the sisters send the message to Jesus at the very beginning of John 11, they try to get like VIP status with Jesus. They say, hey, Lazarus is sick. And we know, you know, you deal with a lot of sick people. So we just want to remind you, Lazarus, the one that you love. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You love him, remember? We're your friends, Jesus. We're in the inner circle, Jesus. You love Lazarus. Please come heal him. When Jesus shows up at the funeral, he cries so hard. Everybody looks at him and says, wow, he really loved Lazarus. Jesus loves Lazarus. And if you're like me, you think, well, good for Lazarus. What's that got to do with me? Well, let me ask you a question. Why is Lazarus dead? Now, we don't know the answer to that biologically. We don't know if it was pneumonia or like a runaway donkey cart. We don't know. He's dead. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking, why do people die? The Bible tells us when God made Adam and Eve our first parents and he rested them in the Garden of Eden, they were not going to die. Now, they were biological realities. They had beating hearts and breathing lungs. They were organic. They, they, they were human like us, but they weren't going to die. In fact, one of the ways you know this is that God, when he puts the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, and he says, don't eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. The implication, of course, being if you don't eat from the tree, you won't die. You'll, you'll live. Adam and Eve were made to live forever. But the Bible tells us that the way that was going to happen is because their physical realities were on the surface, on the surface, but underneath that was the spiritual reality. Adam and Eve were connected to God. And because of their connection to God, they're, they're living with God and walking with God and talking with God. Because of that connection, God sustained them. But when they eat from the tree in Genesis chapter 3, they don't drop dead right away. Instead, what happens is God moves them out of Eden. They become disconnected from God. And as a result, life begins to become what we know it. Hearts beat still, but every beat is closer to the last one. Lungs breathe still, but every breath is closer to the last one. The Bible tells us the reality is we die physically, whatever form that takes or shape that takes, we die physically because we are spiritually disconnected from God. That when we sin like Adam and Eve and desire to not be in relationship with God, but to be God, when we decide for ourselves, I don't want to be connected to God. I, I want to be in charge of my own life. I want to be my God. We then are disconnected from God and we therefore die. 
So Lazarus is dead for whatever biological reason, but he's dead fundamentally because spiritually he has rebelled against God. Lazarus is dead because he lived a life in which he would rather have been God than be in relationship with God. Lazarus is dead because he's a rebel against God. Let me ask you another question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. So Lazarus is dead because he sinned against Jesus. Lazarus is dead because he rebelled against Jesus. Lazarus is dead because Jesus declared the penalty for sin would be death. Jesus shows up at the funeral, the judge of Lazarus. You just imagine people saying, oh, Lazarus is dead. He was so innocent. He didn't deserve this. And Jesus could say, well, i got to be honest with you, you didn't know his internet history. You didn't know how he treated his mother. You don't know what he did in high school. You don't know what he did with his money. You don't know the secrets of his marriage. Jesus does. Jesus has judged him. That's why Lazarus is dead. And yet when Jesus, God, the judge, the one whom Lazarus rebelled against, when Jesus shows up at the funeral, what is his overwhelming emotion? It is Love. You see, we think we have to choose between a God of judgment or a God of love. And so those of us who love justice and want victims to be taken care of say, we have a God of justice. And those of us who want everyone to just get along say, we have a God of love. But here's Jesus at the funeral, the God who has judged Lazarus, loving him. But friends, if Jesus can love Lazarus at his funeral... If Jesus can love Lazarus in the midst of the culmination of a lifetime of rebellion, if Jesus can, having judged Lazarus and having his penalty be death, if Jesus can stand there loving Lazarus, here's a question for you. What then, when then, why then could you ever think that Jesus wouldn't love you? You see, Jesus shows us that even though he understands, even though he knows our hearts, this is not our hearts, but even though he loves, knows our heads and our hearts, even though he knows us, even though he understands us, whatever he sees there, he loves anyways. He understands us and he loves us. But here's my third point. He can help us. Because after all, if Jesus shows up at the funeral with understanding and love and flowers— He's just like everybody else there. If Jesus shows up at the funeral with understanding and love and a eulogy, understanding and love and a casserole, if he, like everybody else, says to Mary and Martha, I wish there was something I could do, he is of no use to us. Here's the problem. In the West, we love the idea of Jesus who is understanding and loving, and we reduce him down to that. Jesus is just so nice. He's like, he's like a regular guy, but he's like a really nice guy. He's understanding and he's loving, but that's not super helpful when you're dead. In fact, it's interesting the way scholars will try to explain this story independent of any idea of resurrection. They'll say things like, maybe Lazarus wasn't really dead. You know, Jesus knew Lazarus was sick, he was sleeping, but he wasn't really dead. And that's really when Jesus says, get up. He's just saying like, hey man, you know, sorry about that, get up. They say, this culture is very primitive. They didn't have the machines to hook Lazarus up to. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Here's the problem with that. Two problems. Number one, primitive cultures know more about death than we do, not less. 
In primitive cultures, people die all the time. You know when someone's dead. But the second problem is they buried him four days ago. So even if he wasn't dead then, he's dead now. He was murdered. He's dead now. When Jesus shows up at the funeral of Lazarus, we need him to have something more than flowers and eulogies and casseroles. Lazarus needs him to have something more. Lazarus doesn't need love and understanding only. He needs resurrection. And that's what Jesus brings. Look at the story. Jesus says, verse 39, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, says to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Martha's saying, I want to hug him too, Jesus. I miss him too, but that's kind of gross. And Jesus said to her in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. I want to skip Jesus' prayer and come back to it in just a minute. But in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, this is what I'm trying to get you to see. At the funeral of Lazarus, God is at the funeral of Lazarus. And just like everybody else, he misses Lazarus. And just like everybody else, he's wrestling with grief and it's hitting him in waves. And just like everybody else, he mourns for and with the family. But unlike everybody else. He says to Lazarus, get up. You see, the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, doesn't just understand us. He doesn't just love us. He has the ability to help us. Lazarus is dead. Jesus raises him from the dead, but Lazarus will die again. He'll be one of the rare guys to have a second funeral. That would be a pretty crazy funeral to be at, right? You'd be waiting for something to happen just in case. Like, I missed the last one. There's no way I'm missing this one, right? A little anticlimactic. Lazarus will die again, but Lazarus' resurrection is pointing us to another resurrection, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember I told you that the reason why people die, according to the Bible, is that we're spiritually disconnected. That underneath our biological realities is a spiritual reality. We are rebels before God. We are disconnected from God. And because of that, we will die. But I want you to see that Jesus, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see this. I want you to see that Jesus was not disconnected from God. He was utterly, completely, perfectly connected to God. Listen to his prayer. Let's go back to it. In verse 40, Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Do you hear the language there? He's saying, I thank you. You've already answered the prayer. I haven't even prayed yet. I thank you. You have already heard me. Then he says this, verse 42, I knew that you always hear me. You see, Jesus is utterly connected to God. He's the son of God. He is God. He's God in the flesh. Jesus is the one of whom God said, this is my son. I am pleased with him. When he prays, he knows. He's like Adam and Eve. He walks with God and talks with God. He is utterly, completely, perfectly connected to God. And yet on the cross... What does he cry out? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus came to live a spiritually connected life so that on the cross, he might become disconnected in our place. On the cross, God the Father is taking all the sins of the church and he's putting them on Jesus. He's taking all the sins and all the disconnectedness and he's putting them on Jesus so that Jesus becomes disconnected. And he's taking all the righteous connectedness of Jesus and he's giving it to the church so that when Jesus dies, we're no longer disconnected. We're connected. And when Jesus raises from the dead three days later, he says, if you are with me in faith, you will die like me. You will raise like me. And when I ascend to the Father in heaven, you you will go with me. Friends, God does understand you. God does love you. But even better than that, one day if you believe in Jesus, you will die and he will tell you to get up. Amen. We have a God who offers more than just understanding and love. He offers resurrection. And the significance of that is if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I don't know what you came in hoping God would do, hoping God would say. I don't know what's on your heart to ask God. But here's what the Bible tells us. If you really knew what you were talking about, if you really had clarity of thought, you would say, God, if I could ask you for one thing, I would ask you for this, resurrection. Because I'm gonna die. And whatever else is troubling me right now, it's important, it's significant, but ultimately not as significant as that. And the Bible tells you God loves you so much that before you could even form that question in Jesus, he'd already answered it. That today, if you look to Jesus in faith, you too can know, like Lazarus, like Jesus, you will raise from the dead. But brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. If it's true that God understands us and loves us and can help us even at death, if he can tell us to get up after we've died, what then can he not help us with? See, the significance of Jesus taking on death and beating it is that's our biggest enemy. That's our biggest problem. So if you can deal with that, anything else I throw at you will be nothing. When you pray, friends, brothers and sisters, friends, when you go to God, when you pray, you have a God who understands you, who loves you, and who can help you in Jesus Christ. And I can think of no better thing to do in response to that truth than to take communion. Because at communion, what we're saying is, by getting out of our seat and coming forward, we're saying this cracker which represents the body of Jesus and this, blood, this juice which represents the blood of Jesus, is it, it, I have these because Jesus, the, the one who was connected, was willing out of his love for me to become disconnected. That that happened through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood on the cross. And I'm now connected to God with hope of resurrection because of what he's done. When you get out of your seat, you are declared declaring that. You are saying, I have hope in Jesus. Not in my job, not in my money, not in my family, not in my health, not in my status, not in my good deeds. I'm getting out of my seat because Jesus is my hope. What a powerful thing to say. What a powerful thing to be true. But that's why if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. And we very much so want to include you, not exclude you, but don't get out of your seat for this. For you, it'll just be a ritual. And all that ritual will do is take your eyes off of what you ought to be thinking about 
which is sitting in your seat and thinking about whether or not you would trust in Jesus. That's what you need to be focused on. But if you're here and you are a Christian, here's how we're going to take it, both in East Hall and here in the sanctuary. You're gonna exit on the left out of your row. The deacons will be up here ready to serve. You're gonna exit on your left, come forward, take two cups. They'll be stacked on top of each other. Just scoop it all up. You're gonna go back into your row on the right and you're gonna take it on your own time. You don't have to be directed to take it. Whenever you're ready, you'll take it uh, there in your seat. If you're in the balcony here in the sanctuary, they're gonna pass the plates uh, by so you don't have to get out of your seat. Uh, Let me pray for the elements and then we'll participate in communion. Father God, we're so grateful that in Jesus you have shown us that you understand us. You grieve with us. You mourn with us. That even in your understanding of us, you don't turn away. You're not repulsed. You love us and you can help us. And God, may what we're getting ready to do glorify you as each and every one of your people here stand up and say, my hope is in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.